This is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Today on Finding Center, the theme is Transforming Through Change. In the first half, Randy J. Olson shares his address, Perspectives on Change. Then in the second half, Pam Mussel speaks on The Path to Transformative Change. In my devotional address today, I'm going to take the dangerous tack of speaking on a subject that everyone in the audience is already thoroughly familiar with, and many of you may even dislike. I'm going to talk about change and offer a few perspectives on coping with change as individuals and as a university community. Since I'm a librarian, some of you probably came today expecting me to talk about books, and so I will, but perhaps not in the context you anticipated. When I say that everyone in the audience is already familiar with change, I'm referring to what each of us experience as the natural consequences of aging, although that experience is quite different for young people than it is for those in later stages of life. For example, a teenager looks forward to aging as an exciting adventure during which they will mature into a man or a woman and be entrusted with new responsibilities like driving, dating, and holding down a part-time job. The young adult looks forward to leaving the protective confines of the family to serve a mission or attend school. Those in their early 20s discover the difference between attraction and love, make eternal covenants in a temple, and then begin a family of their own. So many changes come so quickly for young people, and yet for them, time seems to move very, very slowly. This is partially because, as youth, we dream extravagantly and anticipate eagerly the progress of our lives. Aging before 25 is like being aboard a roller coaster that is slowly climbing up toward its first exhilarating peak. The majority of the ride still lies in front of us as an unknown adventure. Unfortunately, the metaphor of the roller coaster rings true for aging after 25 as well. After 25, life rushes forward at blinding speeds with unexpected twists and turns that threaten to throw us off the track. Some of the ride is exciting, some of it is disappointing, and other parts are positively nauseating. And as the roller coaster speeds towards its conclusion, the car in which we are riding gets increasingly rickety. After 30, the physical consequences of aging, the increasingly routine but hectic pace of our lives, and the growing weight of family and job responsibilities can leave us fearing change and longing for an earlier and seemingly more carefree time of life. However, the inescapable truth is that whether we welcome change or dread it, change will occur. Understanding this, how are we to cope with those changes that are so stressful? In answer to this question, I would like to offer a short story, a parable, if you will, that I heard from my stake president, Thomas MacDonald. There were once two caterpillars, one brown and one green, that lived in the same tree and became extremely close friends. Each morning they would find each other and then settle down on a large leaf where they could eat and talk throughout the day. Munching on leaves in the cool shade of the tree, they were as happy as two friends could possibly be. Then, one morning, the brown caterpillar awoke to find his friend missing. He crawled frantically from one branch to another looking for the green caterpillar, but his friend was simply nowhere to be found. Sad and lonely, the brown caterpillar finally gave up his search and selected a leaf to eat for breakfast. The next day, and the day following that, the brown caterpillar spent each morning looking for his friend, but with no success. Gradually, he forgot about the green caterpillar altogether. Then one late afternoon, just as the sun was setting, a beautiful butterfly landed on the same leaf where the caterpillar was resting. 
The caterpillar had, of course, seen butterflies before, but he had never been so close to one of these beautiful creatures. He couldn't help but contrast the delicate body and wings of the butterfly with his own thick and clumsy appearance. To his surprise, the butterfly spoke to him. Oh, it's so good to see you again, old friend, said the butterfly. What? responded the caterpillar in surprise. Are you talking to me? Well, of course I am, responded the butterfly. Don't you recognize me? The caterpillar, puzzled and embarrassed, said, I'm sorry, but I really don't remember having met you before. Perhaps you're mistaking me for someone else. No, there is no mistake, said the butterfly. But I suppose that I have changed a lot, and so I shouldn't be surprised that you don't recognize me anymore. I was once a green caterpillar, and you and I spent many days together in this very tree. Looking at the beautiful butterfly, the caterpillar was astonished and asked, You were once my friend, the green caterpillar? But how could that be? How could a caterpillar become a butterfly? That seems impossible. Well, it wasn't easy, admitted the butterfly. But when I was a caterpillar, I always believed that I had the power to change if I really wanted to. And to tell you the truth, changing into a butterfly wasn't even the hardest part. The hardest part was giving up being a caterpillar. From a gospel perspective, this short story offers us several important messages. First, change should not be viewed as a harsh and unrelenting enemy in our life because it is instead a necessary part of the plan of salvation. The opportunity to change is the great gift of our Savior, and endeavoring to change must be our lifetime's work. The reward, after years of struggling to change, will be a transformation more complete and wonderful than that of the caterpillar that becomes a butterfly. Our transformation will be the affirmative answer to Alma's question. And now, behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the Church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received His image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change of heart? Our reward, after a lifetime of struggling to be obedient to eternal laws, will be to receive in our hearts and in our faces the very image of Him who never changes, our Savior Jesus Christ. Another important message from the story can be found in the butterfly's observation about changing. The hardest part is giving up being a caterpillar. The hardest part of changing for you and I is giving up who we are today. Each of us harbors in a dark corner of his or her life weaknesses which we have become so comfortable with that they now seem to be a natural part of us, and they may be. For as Alma warns, the natural man is carnal, sensual, and devilish. A caterpillar becomes a butterfly by being true to its nature. Change is possible for us only by overcoming our nature. The secret of our transformation lies not in genetic coding, but in the power of a free agent to act for him or herself, choosing good over evil in the hour of temptation, choosing to respond to anger or mistreatment with love, choosing to serve when service is inconvenient. A last message from a caterpillar story is that in order to be transformed, we must endure experiences that are very, very difficult. It cannot be otherwise. I believe I can best illustrate this point by describing my experiences as a father. All of my children are grown now, and I am tremendously proud of each one of them and love them with all of my heart. But I can still remember clearly and painfully those turbulent teenage years during which my sons and daughter were struggling toward maturity. Like all young people, they faced many temptations and occasionally made decisions that disappointed me, sometimes terrified me, even though they were really just ordinary teenagers. I can still remember wandering around the house late at night, unable to sleep because of worry and frustration. I recall pleading with my Father in Heaven to change my children's attitudes and alter the behavior. 
From my perspective at the time, my prayers went unanswered, because after a night on my knees the next morning, my kids were still the same teenagers. It was a frustrating, anxiety-ridden period of my life when my faith didn't waver, but my endurance was sometimes poor. Over time, however, each of my children did emerge from the trials of youth to become a responsible adult, committed to keeping their eternal covenants. And with the passing of time, seemingly the passing of a great storm, I have been able to look back and come to three important realizations. First, there were times that I can clearly identify now that my Father in Heaven did intercede in the lives of my children to protect them from harm. Today I have an absolute testimony that our Father in Heaven answers prayers and that He is a God of miracles. Second, the temptations and trials that my children experienced were a necessary part of their progress within the plan of salvation. It was never in my power, nor according to my Father in Heaven's will, for me to protect my children from having to make difficult choices. It is only through making these choices that any of us experience the mighty change of heart. Third, during my children's teenage years, I was in need of refining change more than they were. I have come to understand that it was only in the middle of anxiety-ridden nights that I began to love my children as much as my Savior does and that I caught a small glimpse of what it will mean to be a parent in the eternities. I have come to believe that it was in the middle of the night when I was praying for one of my children with my heart filled with love for them even though their behavior had disappointed me that I began to comprehend my Savior's love for me and His extraordinary patience. I was impatient for my children to become perfect in a short four- or five-year period of their lives, while my Savior has been waiting half of a lifetime for me to become more perfect in observing my covenants. How often has He yearned for me, how often has He yearned for you, to overcome whatever it is that holds us back from experiencing more fully the transforming power of His Atonement? For as we are told in 2 Corinthians 5.17, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are become new. I would like now to shift my focus away from the need for personal change and offer a perspective on change relative to our university. I have worked at BYU for almost 28 years. I love this school, and I am committed to its mission. In many respects, I feel that every year at BYU is critical, because each year a new group of young men and young women come here seeking to strengthen their testimonies and gain an education. I have a growing sense, however, that we are now entering a particularly crucial period when our employees and our students may be required to face new challenges and reach for new opportunities. Because I'm a librarian, the most effective way I have of introducing my perspective on these new challenges and opportunities is to talk about the library. Our library is one of the nation's finest, a remarkable repository of knowledge and human expression. In our collections are 4,000-year-old clay tablets, papyrus that is over 1,000 years old, manuscript books produced in monasteries over 600 years ago, and printed books from the great epics of the Renaissance and the Reformation. All of these works, whether comprised of cuneiform symbols in clay, ink and gold leaf on vellum, or printed text on paper, have survived for hundreds of years to enable great men and women of the past to speak, in Moroni's words, as voices from the dust to the students of BYU today. Also well-preserved in our library's collections are books from the Age of the Enlightenment, and the centuries that followed, the periods during which Europe and America were shaped by the Industrial Revolution and by new ideas about self-governance and religious reform. Robert Downs, in his fascinating work, Books That Changed the World, observes that it was during these centuries that the idea of progress was linked to scientific discovery and technological innovation. 
increasingly it was believed that science and technology could overcome all of the world's problems. Evidence of the great accomplishments and unintended consequences of this reliance on technology can be found in our library. For example, a new paper manufacturing process introduced during the 19th century to meet the growing demand for books left the pages of those books filled with acid. Today, many works of the 19th century are literally turning to dust on library shelves around the world, effectively silencing their authors. The invention of the camera and sound recording devices during the 19th and early 20th centuries made it possible to preserve not only written text, but also the sights and sounds of progress. The media produced by these recording devices, however, have proven to be no more durable than acid paper. For example, a photograph must be stored in the dark and at near freezing temperatures in order to survive much more than 100 years. During the last few decades of the 20th century, Enormous strides were made in the ability to record and store large volumes of text, images, and sound in digital format. Increased emphasis was also placed on our capacity to deliver this information across high-speed networks, leading ultimately to the birth of the Internet and the World Wide Web. I can illustrate quickly the enormous potential of these developments from a library perspective. I hold here one volume of Eveline B. Wells' handwritten diary. Sister Wells' diary begins in 1846 when she was 18 years of age and exiting Nauvoo to join the pioneer trek across the West. It continues into the 20th century when Sister Wells served as the General Relief Society president of the church. Her diary is an inspiring record of a lifetime of faith and courage that is made freely available in the library to any student, faculty member, or other researcher interested in the history of the church. Because of the age and fragile nature of the diary, however, the library is somewhat cautious about how frequently it is used, and a diary cannot, of course, be taken out of our special collections. This CD-ROM contains a digital reproduction of Sister Wells' diary, and a transcript of the text in each volume as well that is so much easier to read than the original handwriting. The digital versions on this CD-ROM will be made web accessible so that they can be read by anyone connected to the Internet, anywhere in the world, any time of the day or night. Our library is now digitally reformatting about 59 other pioneer diaries that will also be made available on the web. Libraries throughout the world are engaged in digitizing their unique collections that include diaries, photographs, musical recordings, and even television footage. With this global effort underway, and given enough time and goodwill, there is a real possibility that the unique holdings of every research library in the world, including ours at BYU, could become the common property of students and scholars everywhere. With such possibilities before us, it is no wonder that many are proclaiming that we have entered a new era, the Information Age. Some suggest that this age will transform our world much like the Industrial Revolution did in an earlier era. There are some dangers, however, that threaten this vision of the future that are embedded in the very technology that makes digital libraries possible. One of these dangers is that the media for storing digital records is remarkably fragile, far more fragile, in fact, than acid paper or photographs. For example, we can't be certain how long the digital version of Sister Wells' diary will survive on this CD-ROM, but it will certainly be less than 100 years, probably less than 50. Of even greater concern is the viability of the computer hardware and software required to read the CD-ROM. Given the rapid evolution of computer technology, I suspect that CD-ROM hardware and software could be obsolete and no longer available within 20 years. And it isn't only libraries that are worried about the danger of relying on rapidly changing technology. 
In a recent issue of Time magazine dedicated to the future of technology, Stephen Brand observed that some technologies have now become self-accelerating, meaning that one generation of advance, such as a new computer chip, will be used to design its own replacement. According to Brand, self-accelerating technologies create conditions that are unstable, unpredictable, and unreliable. And since these particular technologies drive whole sectors of our society, there is a risk that civilization itself may become unstable, unpredictable, and unreliable. Taking a related point of view in an article for The Futurist, Stephen Bertman notes it has been 30 years since Alvin Toffer first warned of the psychological and biological dangers of exposing people to too much change in too short a period of time. Yet during those 30 years, the rate of technological and social change in our world has increased dramatically. In Bertman's opinion, we are fast approaching a rate of social change that, in his words, can warp our behavior and our most basic values, even as it desensitizes us to this metamorphosis. The issue of time I mentioned earlier contains a shocking example of Bertman's point. In that issue, an article by Joel Stein explores, without apology, the hope for technology to improve the quality of pornography in the future. With Berkman's warning in mind, we have to wonder whether the information age, with all of its astounding scientific advances, will be the precursor to a new period of enlightenment during which the benefits of education will spread over the face of the earth. Or will the information era usher in a new dark ages during which society surrenders its ethical and moral standards in the pursuit of entertainment and pleasure? The answer, of course, is a change will occur in both directions. And from a personal perspective, whether we use new technology for self-enlightenment or self-indulgence is a matter of choice, the very choice to which I referred earlier in this talk. I believe that from a university perspective, the information age will open new opportunities for BYU to fulfill its mission more effectively than ever before. Remember that the university's mission is to assist individuals in their quest for perfection and eternal life, and as noted later in our mission statement, to succeed in this mission, the university must provide an environment enlightened by living prophets and sustained by those moral virtues which characterize the life and teachings of the Son of God. Of all the great institutions of higher education in the world, BYU and the other church schools are unique in espousing this mission, and we are alone in being guided by living prophets. Our prophet today, Gordon B. Hinckley, addressed a number of questions relative to BYU in a priesthood session of the October 1999 General Conference. Speaking about the limitation on how many students can be accommodated on our Provo campus, President Hinckley said, If we cannot give to all, let us give to as many as we can. The number who can be accommodated on campus is finite, but the influence of the university is infinite. Tremendous efforts are being made to enlarge and extend that influence. During our 1999 university conference, President Bateman announced four institutional objectives for the university, the third of which was to extend the blessings of learning to members of the Church in all parts of the world. In the library, we will work to increase BYU's influence and extend the blessings of learning by using new technologies to make available those materials that support education and testify of eternal truths, materials like the diaries of our pioneer ancestors. In a world where the Internet is all but overwhelmed by trivia and pornography, our library's contribution will be to make available materials of enduring value. I am confident that BYU's faculty will use technology to further new modes of teaching that will both improve the quality of education on our campus and make education more broadly accessible to young people throughout the world. 
the unique contribution of our faculty will be to make secular learning available within the light of the restored gospel. I believe that the impact of BYU on a world in danger of losing its ethical and moral foundations will be inestimable. For progress should never be measured in terms of scientific and technological advancement, but only in terms of the human condition, and the solution to mankind's problems will be found in the gospel, not in technology. I also believe that extending BYU's influence will be one of the most complex and difficult tasks ever undertaken at the university. It will require that every employee search for ways of performing his or her assignment more effectively, including using new technology. And it may be that as we seek to change the way we work, we will need to remember the observation of the butterfly. The most difficult part of changing is giving up being a caterpillar. It may be that the most difficult part of changing the way we work is giving up the way we worked in the past. In a few minutes remaining, I would like to offer one more perspective on change for the students of the university by relating an experience from the life of my grandmother, Thelma Bean Waddups. My grandmother grew up in a small Idaho town of Herbert that lay about 20 miles south of Rexburg. Herbert consisted of nothing more than widely separated farmhouses, typically log cabins, and two town buildings. One of the town buildings was the post office, and the other served as a one-room schoolhouse Monday through Friday, a dance hall on Saturday, and an LDS meeting house on Sunday. My great-grandfather, Charles Bean, was a man of tremendous imagination and industry who did whatever was required to support his wife and children. At this point in his life, Charlie Bean was homesteading new farmland with the hope of improving the living circumstances for his family. In 1910, my grandmother began school in Herbert at the age of six. Since transportation near the turn of the century was limited to riding a horse, taking a buggy, or walking, my grandmother typically walked the two miles to and from her schoolhouse. My grandmother's teacher sold Bibles as a part-time job, and in hopes of motivating his students, he offered to give one of his Bibles at Christmas time to the child who had the best attendance record and the best grades. In a poor Idaho farming community in 1910, it would have been a magnificent thing for a young child to own a book of her own, particularly if that book were the Bible. My grandmother determined that the Bible would be hers, even though she was much younger than most of the other children in the school. That fall, in the small, isolated town of Herbert, she attended school without missing a day. Now, those of you familiar with the weather around Rexburg will be more impressed by the accomplishments of this young girl who walked four miles a day during the storms of November and December. Excited by the opportunity of learning, my grandmother found that she was naturally a good student, and by applying herself, she earned the best grades in the school. As Christmas approached, she was confident that the coveted Bible would be hers. Finally, when the day arrived for the teacher to award his prize, my great-grandparents were reluctant to let my grandmother make the journey to school. There had been a particularly severe storm the night before, and the snow was so deep that it was nearly impossible for a man or a horse to travel. However, the crust on the snow was firm enough that a small child could walk on top without falling through. And so my great-grandfather, Charlie Bean, had the choice of either letting his young daughter make the journey alone or keeping her home undoubtedly causing her to lose the Bible. He finally conceded to let her try it on her own. And my great-grandmother, Agnes Latham Bean, sat by the window and watched my grandmother with a spyglass for as long as she was in sight. After a long, cold journey, my grandmother eventually arrived safely at school and was eager to receive her reward. When the time came, however, the teacher told my grandmother 
that even though she had the best attendance record and the highest grades in school, he decided not to give her the Bible because a young girl her age couldn't possibly read well enough nor fully appreciate the scriptures. The teacher gave the prize to another student. As you can imagine, my grandmother made the long journey home through the snow that day in tears. It seemed that all of her walking and all of her studying had earned her nothing. My great-grandfather, Charlie Bean, was overwhelmed with pity for his daughter, and even though he, like most farmers of that time, had almost no cash, he scraped together enough to buy my grandmother a Bible from her teacher for Christmas, which she has kept to this day to pass down to our family as a testimony of how important the scriptures of our Lord are and how hard we must work to earn them. In the many years that followed, my grandmother, who walked to school, lived to watch on television as a man walked on the moon. She lived through two world wars and raised a family during the Depression. With no more than a high school education from Ricks, she became a registrar for Utah State University and sat in councils with deans and university presidents. Having hardly ventured out of Idaho as a girl, she served missions with my grandfather in Canada and New Zealand. I believe that through this life of enormous change, she was sustained by the physical, emotional, and spiritual strength she gained as a young girl walking through the snow to school in pursuit of the Word of God. It seems likely, given the pace of change in our world today, that virtually every student in this audience will experience more change during their lifetime than my grandmother has during hers. How you react to those changes will determine whether you view your life as an ever-expanding set of opportunities or as a never-ending series of disappointments. The choice will be yours. If, like my grandmother, you set high expectations for yourself and then work with energy and discipline toward achieving those goals, then you will be transformed into a person that you can scarcely imagine today. If, like my grandmother, your guiding desire is to obtain the Word of God, then even though you experience some disappointments in life, your Father in Heaven will make up the difference. Now is the time, while you are a student at BYU, to develop the physical, emotional, and spiritual strength that will sustain you through all of the changes that will come in your life. I testify to you that your Father in Heaven is aware of your desires for the future and your struggles to be more obedient today. I testify to you that your Father in Heaven loves you and that His Spirit will strive with you always. And I bear this testimony to you in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Our theme today is Transforming Through Change. We've just heard from Randy J. Olson. After the break, we'll return with Pam Mussel for The Path to Transformative Change. is Finding Center, a daily hour of spiritual focus. Our theme today is Transforming Through Change. Next is Pam Mussel, Associate Chair of the BYU Department of Dance at the time of this address, titled The Path to Transformative Change. There's a student in the dance department named Brayden who has influenced the lives of peers and dance faculty alike through his appreciation for the experiences he encounters in dance coursework. 
Braden makes his appreciation known in moments when, with an audible sigh, he utters, Ah, that changed my life. No one ever doubts Braden's sincerity or the reality of his experience. Indeed, we wonder how we might inspire all of our students to allow their lives to be changed and transformed in similar ways. The process of change, whether temporal or spiritual, can be uncomfortable. Perhaps we like ourselves just as we are. After all, some of our flaws can feel like old friends. So why do we need to change at all? If we look to the scriptures, we are taught the importance of changing and even transforming our lives in order to prepare to meet God. The Apostle Paul teaches, Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed through the perfect will of God. The type of transformation that Paul speaks of implies a change from our carnal, natural state to a more godlike state wherein we can abide God's presence, for the natural man cannot stand in the presence of God. Messiah teaches us that with God's help, our hearts and desires can be transformed so completely that we put away the natural man altogether. After King Benjamin's moving speech, the people cried with one voice, saying, The Spirit of the Lord Omnipotent has wrought a mighty change in our hearts, that we have no more disposition to do evil but to do good continually. I love Messiah's reference to a mighty change. Not a small, inconsequential modification, but a transformation that impacts every aspect of our being. A transformation that alters us in such a way that we are not the same person as before. A mighty change of this magnitude will undoubtedly influence both the temporal and spiritual aspects of our lives because it allows us to see everything through new eyes. So, what does it mean to allow our lives and our hearts to be changed by the choices we make and the experiences we encounter daily, weekly, monthly, or over the course of a lifetime? How do we prepare ourselves to be more receptive to change? Today I'd like to discuss five principles that I believe are requisite for realizing the lasting, transformative change that the Lord requires of us. The first principle is to pay attention to where you're going. My earliest memories of formal dance training revolve around learning to tap dance. At the tender age of nine, I began making the weekly trek up a steep flight of stairs that led to the dance studio above the old Spanish Fork fire station where I took classes. I remember putting on my tap shoes and hearing the satisfying sound of the taps as I made my way to my designated spot on the dance floor to begin each week's lesson. I can still hear my teacher's voice calling out, Shuffle, hop, step, flat, ball, change, over and over again as she drilled us on basic tap vocabulary. But despite my teacher's diligent instruction, I think I spent more time flailing about than actually mastering the steps. Though I loved my dance class, My mind often wandered to unimportant things, and somehow my feet refused to follow the words and rhythms that our teacher called out. In our shared human experience, many of us similarly struggle at times with not knowing where to focus our attention as it wanders to unimportant things. Though my lack of focus in dance class had minor consequences, failure to pay attention to more important temporal and spiritual matters can have devastating consequences. Paying attention to where we are going is one of the most fundamental things we can do in our process of becoming who we want to become and who the Lord wants us to become. 
After a year of weekly dance lessons, I remember performing in the annual dance review, and in spite of my teacher's persistent drilling, I was still unable to perform the required tap steps. Even at that young age, I realized that I could do better, and I vowed in that very moment to pay closer attention to the steps and rhythms. That one small decision, trivial as it may seem, was a life-altering moment for me. Though no one, including myself, would ever have predicted that I would become a dancer judging by my childhood tap dancing skills, that one seemingly insignificant decision to pay closer attention to what mattered set me on the path toward my eventual profession as a dance educator. All of us are surrounded by daily choices, opportunities, and demands that compete for our attention. Our cell phones, social media, recreation, employment, school studies, relationships, and the practice of our faith. How we choose to attend to the various factors that compete for our attention will ultimately determine our life journey. Becoming distracted by fleeting pursuits will never lead to the kind of transformative change that really matters. So what will help us rise above the distractions that surround us and attend to the changes that need to happen in our lives? In dance training, students must learn to be in tune with their bodies enough to recognize what needs to change and subsequently to notice change when it actually takes place. Dancers who attend to physical and kinesthetic sensations on a daily basis begin to notice subtle differences in posture, balance, or movement on any given day. Subtle changes in posture, patterns of practice, and movement behavior can literally reshape the body's architecture over time, either for better or for worse. What patterns of behavior do we as individuals find in our own lives that require our attention, and how do these patterns over time begin to shape and define our character, our spirit, and even our eternal destiny? Even as members of Christ's Church, we sometimes fail to recognize when our patterns of behavior are not rooted on the gospel path. Yet our Heavenly Father, the source of all knowledge, has laid out a pattern by which we can gain the essential skills needed to return to His presence. And I will give unto you a pattern in all things that ye may not be deceived. If we plant our feet firmly on the path the Lord has set out for us, He will teach us in the way of wisdom and of knowledge and lead us along the correct path, even the straight and narrow path which leads to eternal life. A second principle that leads to transformative change is to stay on the path of daily practice. Transformative change can occur suddenly in one singular event, but more often it is a process that takes place gradually through applied, focused daily practice. To stay on the path of any pursuit, whether it be physical, intellectual, or spiritual, requires the discipline to dedicate oneself to a lifetime of daily practice and application. For those who choose to stay on the path to become dancers, the required discipline is exacting. The schooling of an accomplished dancer can take decades, entailing thousands of plies and untold hours of rehearsal. Through daily practice, a dancer becomes intimately familiar with the sometimes tedious repetition of exercises and with frequent fatigue and sore, aching muscles. A dancer's path is fraught with many, many mistakes, many corrections, and at times frustration, discouragement, and doubt in one's ability to succeed. During these moments, the temptation to quit can seem overwhelming. 
Dance training can be compared to a crucible, which Merriam-Webster defines as a situation in which concentrated forces interact to cause or influence change or development. Or, as another source defines it, a severe trial in which different elements interact, leading to the creation of something new. Those who choose to endure through the long hours, weeks, and years of self-mastery that are required to become an accomplished dancer eventually find that the crucible of practice has forged a new body that is strong, athletic, fine-tuned, and expressive. Our lives, like dance training, may also at times plod tediously forward and at other times be fraught with difficulties. Sherry Dew addressed life's daily challenges when she stated, There will be days when you feel defeated, exhausted, and plain old beat up by life's whiplash. Some days it will feel as though the veil between heaven and earth is made of reinforced concrete. You may even face a crisis of faith. In fact, you can count on trials that test your testimony and your faith. On my office wall is a saying attributed to the author Ian McLaren, who said, Be kind, for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. This statement reminds me daily that we, each of us, are fighting hard battles. No one is exempt because trials are a part of the human condition. As human beings, we make mistakes. We experience loss, illness, loneliness, and heartache. We become discouraged. We may even become disillusioned and question why we are on this path in the first place. When we find ourselves succumbing to discouragement, disillusionment, or doubt, it can sometimes be tempting to give up trying altogether or to seek fulfillment that leads us off the gospel path. And yet, that which the Savior offers us is exponentially more valuable than any fulfillment that can be found elsewhere. Simon Peter and Andrew, two humble fishermen, understood this principle, for when the Savior beckoned, they straightaway left their nets and followed him. The price of discipleship would cost them their livelihood, and yet they did not hesitate to follow him. Though we may not be asked to give up our livelihoods, the price of discipleship to Jesus Christ does require that we, too, devote our lives to the path of discipleship. We have been promised that those who choose to stay the course in spite of mistakes, heartaches, doubt, and discouragement will eventually emerge with strength of character and spirit that have been forged within the crucible of our daily struggles. It is often through long stretches of faithful practice and discipleship that the Lord takes what we offer Him and forges us into something new. Just as a dancer's body is transformed over time, our very natures can be shaped and changed. Discipleship to Jesus Christ transforms all aspects of our beings as His law becomes written in our hearts. When our hearts change, all things pass away and all things become new. Figuratively and perhaps quite literally, we become new creatures in Christ. We may not always discern the changes, the change that is taking place within us over the decades that accumulate to a lifetime of discipleship, but as we look backward, we often recognize patterns of growth that have been forged in the crucible of our lived experiences. These changes come line upon line, prayer upon prayer, covenant upon covenant trial upon trial, precept upon precept. Here a little and there a little we see how staying on the path of our daily practice has changed our hearts and transformed our character 
into something more beautiful and lovely than we could ever have imagined. And we come to understand that the price is always worthwhile. And if ye keep my commandments and endure to the end, ye shall have eternal life, which gift is the greatest of all the gifts of God. A third principle in realizing transformative change is to embrace the path and have faith in its ability to lead us home. The distinction between staying on the path and embracing the path is how we choose to make the journey, with fear, murmuring, self-pity, and doubt, or with faith, submissiveness, humor, and joy. As with any highly disciplined movement form, the crucible of training that changes, forms, and reshapes a dancer's body requires a deep and abiding passion for dancing, coupled with faith that the effort will lead to the desired transformation in dance skill. Even the finest dance tutoring can be ineffective if the dancer is not willing to trust and find joy in the process, especially in moments when the work is particularly hard. Marjorie Pay Hinckley have maintained that the best way to get through our hardest difficulties in life is to laugh. In her words, you either have to laugh or cry. I prefer to laugh. Crying gives me a headache. A dear friend who recently passed away often cited Hinckley's words. Even as she knew she was dying, my friend poked fun at herself in a humorous, self-deprecating way. She had an endearing gift for putting others at ease by making them laugh. Even in our bleakest, most trying hours, humor can chase away the darkness that sometimes threatens to overtake us. Finding joy and humor in the journey, even when our path is strewn with difficulties, transforms not only our attitude about the trials we encounter, but our ability to learn and be tutored by them. Several years ago, there was a beautiful dance education student named Michelle. Michelle had a difficult home life. Her parents had divorced, her father had not maintained contact, and she and her mother had a tenuous relationship. Sometimes Michelle confided in me, expressing deep yearning to feel her parents' love. As if these challenges were not enough, Michelle was diagnosed with a relentless form of cancer, and the crucible of illness took command of her body. The cancer treatments robbed Michelle of her beautiful white blonde hair, and in spite of aggressive treatments, she grew steadily weaker. But even as her physical body weakened, a transformation of another kind was taking place. Michelle's very countenance began to change. Although she had previously been reserved and shy, Michelle began to radiate joy and goodness. It was not uncommon to see her somewhere within the halls of the Richards Building, her shiny bald head tied with a big pink bow, and her smile the size of Texas. Rather than succumbing to self-pity and fear, Michelle chose to fill her days with joy and laughter, surrounded by those she loved most. Not long before her death, she told me that to her amazement and joy, the circumstances of her illness had initiated a healing process for her fractured family. Michelle had placed her trust in the hands of God and was rewarded with the ability to live out her remaining days with a heightened sense of happiness and love. Though she had not found physical healing, Michelle found the spiritual healing and profound joy that come only through Jesus Christ's healing atonement. When we place our faith and trust in Christ's ability to heal us, we surrender our will to the path that He requires of us. A passage of scripture that has guided me throughout my life is found in Proverbs 3, 5-6. 
Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. There have been several pivotal moments in my life when I have tangibly felt the presence of unseen hands guiding me from behind, directing me to where I should go. Each time I have followed their direction, I have been rewarded with unexpected outcomes and blessings that I never could have imagined for myself. Trusting with all our hearts requires us to be vulnerable, to step into the unknown and to swallow our doubts and fears. Trusting with all our hearts requires that we let go of our human need to be in control and instead surrender our hearts willingly to the unseen hands that direct our paths. The most supernal example of faith, trust, obedience, and surrender was demonstrated by the Savior, who, when facing his darkest hour of pain and anguish in the Garden of Gethsemane, cried out to his Father, If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou wilt. When we follow Christ's example and willingly surrender to whatever crucibles are in store for us, we offer ourselves up to his incomprehensible capacity to take the incomplete, broken, and imperfect human being that we offer him and heal us. After all, the Savior has promised, Come unto me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Notice that the promise includes all of us, regardless of our current or past circumstances. We need only to reach out to him and ask. A fourth principle in realizing transformative change is to understand the Lord's admonition to be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father in heaven is perfect. For in faithfully seeking to fulfill Christ's admonition, some of us may be deceived by counterfeit standards of perfection. Merriam-Webster defines the word perfect as being entirely without fault or defect, or in essence, to be flawless. For dancers, inclinations toward perfectionism are not uncommon. Being surrounded by mirrors, dancers are constantly reminded of their flaws and imperfections, even as they strive to attain an exacting ideal of technical expertise and athleticism. Within this daily environment, dancers can easily embrace the deceptive belief that our bodies and actions must be flawless. Popular media promote similar ideals of perfection through airbrushed, photoshopped images of models, athletes, and superhumans on billboards, in TV ads, and in social media posts. Everywhere we turn, we encounter images of astonishingly beautiful, seemingly perfect human beings that seem to suggest that we should strive to become more like them. These deceptive illusions entice us to believe that if we work hard enough, train hard enough, study hard enough, or become thin or beautiful enough, we can become superhumans ourselves. But the truth is we can never achieve the kind of perfection that these images suggest. Though we may earnestly strive to be perfect in all of our actions and doings, each of us, all of us, have flaws, and all of us make daily mistakes. When using worldly perfection as our measuring stick, we will never feel that we are enough. But worldly standards of perfection were not what the Savior had in mind for his disciples. If we look to other translations of the word perfect, we find opportunities to expand our understanding of what Christ is asking us to do. In Hebrew, to be perfect can mean whole, sound, helpful, and having integrity. In Greek, it means to be complete. 
So what does it mean to become whole, helpful, sound, and complete? For over 30 years, a dear friend and I have met almost every weekday, weather, schedules, and health permitting, for a shared morning power walk. In recent years, we have been joined by additional walking partners, and together we have shared our life stories, our misgivings, our heartaches, and we have found humor in divulging our silliest fears and shortcomings. Almost daily, we discuss gospel principles and acknowledge the vital role the Savior plays in our lives. During the summertime, our daily route takes us up a steep, difficult hill that some call Heartbreak Hill, probably named because everyone who climbs it feels like they're having a heart attack by the time they make it to the top. That hill taxes our will and stamina regardless of how often we climb it, serving as a reminder of our human frailties and imperfections. But we persist in climbing it one step at a time, and each time we reach the summit, we emerge with newfound strength and resolve to face the challenges in our lives with similar tenacity. Through our daily conversation and the shared trial of climbing that hill, my friends and I seek for a greater sense of health and wholeness in body, mind, and spirit. In essence, we strive together to become more whole and complete as human beings. But together we often acknowledge that in our efforts to become perfected, we are powerless to accomplish such an unattainable task on our own. Christ's admonition to become perfect is therefore an invitation to become perfected through His mediating grace. When we humbly and sincerely offer ourselves up to be made whole and complete in Christ, we become perfected in Him. Through an unfathomable act of love and grace, Christ accepts what we offer Him and makes us whole through His infinite and incomprehensible Atonement. In and through the Savior is the only way that we can become truly perfected as we become at one with Him. You may have noticed by now that with each principle I have introduced, the key to transformative change is found in and through the Savior Jesus Christ. His is the only path by which we can return to the presence of our Father in Heaven. In Alma 5, we catch a glimpse of what that glorious moment might be like as we stand once again in the presence of God. Alma asks, And now, behold, I ask of you, my brethren of the Church, have ye spiritually been born of God? Have ye received His image in your countenances? Have ye experienced this mighty change in your hearts? Can ye imagine to yourselves that you hear the voice of the Lord saying unto you in that day, Come unto me, ye blessed. For behold, your works have been the works of righteousness upon the face of the earth. This passage of scripture always reminds me of how far I have yet to come in my efforts to reconcile myself to the gospel path. It bestows a magnificent promise of how the diligent daily practice of our faith, coupled with Christ's saving grace, can over time transform and perfect our very countenance and prepare us to meet God. The glorious image of standing before God clothed in righteousness leads to a fifth principle that I believe is requisite for transformative change, to follow God's simple and profound admonition to be still. Though dancers rely on movement as our medium of expression and communication, the medium of stillness can be equally as impactful. Moments of stillness in choreography can help to clarify, punctuate, provide perspective, and sometimes offer breathing space for both the dancer and the observer. Without moments of stillness as counterpoint, movement can sometimes lose clarity and perspective. 
Likewise, stillness in our personal lives helps to provide perspective, clarity, and breathing space as we step away from the whirlwind of distractions that surround us to pause along our journey to recalibrate, reorient, and refocus our attention on what matters. In moments of stillness, distractions and uncertainties fall away. In moments of stillness, our hearts are changed and transformed. In moments of stillness, through the whisperings of the still small voice, we come to know both the Father and His Son. In closing, I'd like to emphasize that the process of transformative change does not adhere to a prescribed clock or schedule. It is unique to each of us and can only be realized through our own personal commitment to growth and change. I recently returned from a contemporary dance study abroad experience with two other colleagues and 22 BYU dance students. On our first day together, I invoked the path to transformative change as a theme for our shared journey together, and I invited each student to actively seek opportunities for growth and transformation. Subsequently, I witnessed each of our amazing students' commitment to seeking transformative growth and change on a daily basis. As faculty, we were often tutored and led by our students as they repeatedly demonstrated the depth of their commitment, not only to their individual growth as dancers, but more importantly to their spiritual growth as children of God. Everywhere we went, dance teachers, tour guides, and festival directors noticed and commented on our students' light, intelligence, curiosity, openness, and motivation to learn. Brothers and sisters, like our study abroad students who remained open to the possibility of life-altering change on a daily basis, all of us can find ways to be more open and receptive to the transformative change that the Lord requires of us, even that mighty change that transforms us into someone new. In our efforts to do so, I invite us all to examine our lives to determine how and in what specific ways we might pay better attention to the things that matter and the things that need to change, to keep our feet firmly planted on the gospel's path, to embrace and be tutored by our trials, to seek to be made whole, and to make time to be still. If we do so with an eye single to Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer, we will experience that mighty change of heart that leads to personal transformation of the highest order, to receive His very image in our countenances. I so testify in the sacred name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. You've been listening to Finding Center. Join us every weekday for an hour of inspiration and spiritual focus. Today's theme was Transforming Through Change with thoughts from Randy J. Olson and Pam Mussel. Find links to the full text, audio, and video of these addresses at byuradio.org slash findingcenter. Finding Center is a production of BYU Broadcasting.